Good morning, Redeemer. Uh, it's such a privilege, isn't it, to be here together, that we can meet as God's people, that we can meet as those with hope. Even as Bidu led us through that prayer of confession, I was struck again by how we don't deserve to come into God's presence, but the, conf- the confidence we can have, the hope we can have. He knows we're sinners. He knows we're broken. We know- he knows we're weak. What a privilege. We can come to him and celebrate, uh, not in fear, but, but in hope, in, in joy. And then I'm praying that today as we get into God's word, we'll listen to a part of God's word, which, which can be hard to understand. Uh, it is hard to understand, isn't it? Yet uh, this is God's word to us. It would continue to give us hope in Jesus and would train us to live for him. So, so let's pray that God really would speak to each of us and, and that we would be changed. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us. Thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we pray through today's passage in Zechariah, you would give us hope in him and you would shape us and change us even to live for him. It's in Jesus' good and great name that we pray. Amen. Well, in the past year, my family has done something we thought we would never do. We became pet people. Uh, After years of uh, promising one another that we would never have a pet, a cute little kitten arrived in our compound. And and at first we were just feeding the kitten and then sort of taking it to the vet um, to to now where we've got a cat living inside our our house for most of of the day. And and what we we realised when we took in a cat, when we became pet owners, that lots of our friends are allergic to cats. And so whenever a friend who's allergic to cats uh, comes in, uh, the cat needs to go out. And it's not just sort of throwing the cat out at the last minute. We want to care for our friends who are coming into our house. We really want to get the cat out. We put the cat out a bit early. Uh, we, we go and make sure that the cat's things are outside too, any toys or beds that they're out. Uh, we will get out the vacuum cleaner and vacuum the, the couches, the cushions that the cat has touched. Because if our friends are coming in, like a friend with a cat allergy and a cat can't coexist. And if the cat's, if our friend's coming over, the cat's going to go. It's, it's got to get out. And, and so in today's passage, uh, we, we hear that actually God has returned to his house. Uh, God has come into his house and we're going to hear and we'll see in this passage that because God has come in, some things need to go. Uh, this book of Zechariah is written to God's people who've just returned home. In about 587 BC, God's people, uh, they were sent from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was defeated by the Babylonians. Uh, they lost the temple. They'd spent decades in Babylon as exiles. Yet some of them now had started to come home. And Zechariah, so far, the first four chapters have told us that as God's people have returned to Jerusalem, So too, God has returned to Jerusalem. God has come back. He will again dwell with them. He will again be their God. And as God has returned to Jerusalem, uh, he will now tell us that actually some things need to go. As last week, we heard of how God deals with sin. Uh, God cleanses the, the, the guilt of sin. We saw it in the beautiful picture where he took the filthy clothes of the high priest replaced them with pure clothes. It's an amazing picture of the forgiveness he offers us, the justification we receive before God. 
This last week spoke of that forgiveness, that justification. Today we'll speak more of sanctification, uh, our response to God's grace. Uh, as God continues to cleanse sin, but he cleanses his people, his city of uh, the presence uh, and the power of sin. Uh, we'll see today that now God has returned to his people, some things need to go. And these first few, uh, those first three uh, sort of visions that Zechariah saw, that Phoebe just read for us, uh, they together will tell us that sin must leave Jerusalem, for the house of sin will be destroyed. Now we see it firstly in this picture of a scroll. Uh, we're told, again, I lifted my eyes and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, well, obviously, I see a flying scroll. Um, I see a flying scroll. Its length, 20 cubits. Its width, 10 cubits. This is strange in that it's nine meters by four and a half meters. It's a large scroll. It's strange in that no one is carrying it or reading it. It's flying. But it's explained. We're told what this scroll represents. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what's on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what's on the other side. This scroll, uh, it goes out as, as a curse on the land, and as it speaks of going over the whole land, this speaks of God's land. Now that God's people and God have returned to his land, uh, his city, and it comes as a curse against sin. It says, everyone who steals, uh, for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out. Uh, this is God saying that now I've returned to Jerusalem, now I've returned to my city, sin has to go. Uh, lying has no place anymore. Uh, stealing has no place anymore. It feels like it represents God's law. You know, might know two of the Ten Commandments were don't bear false witness, uh, don't, don't steal. It's like God's sending out his law and saying, if I am here, then sin no longer belongs. He says he's going to send sin out and judge it. I'll send it out in verse 4, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely, and it shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. If God has returned to Jerusalem, then sin has to go. Sin has no place. He says he's going to judge it. And we, while some people might build a house of lies, and build their life on, on sin, on, on stealing, uh, we know that God has called his people uh, in Zechariah's day to build a different house. He's called them to be building his house. God comes home. If God's come in, uh, sin has to go. We see this secondly in the picture of the basket. And with the basket, the visions get even stranger, don't they? Uh, in this, we see this basket, and there's a woman inside, yet this isn't talking about a particular woman or saying anything about women in particular or in general. Uh, this is just a representation saying, this is wickedness, this is sin. And what happens to sin in that, this second vision? Well, sin gets stuffed in a basket, a, a, lead of lead, uh, a lid of lead is put on top so it can't escape, 
And this basket is taken away out of Jerusalem. And it's taken to the land of Shinar, uh, the, the land of Babylon. But to understand this, these strange pictures, it's helpful to actually go back. Uh, because similar imagery, well, uh, different, similar but different imagery was used in Ezekiel. Uh, the book of Ezekiel was written to God's people several decades earlier. And it was explaining why they were being punished, why they had lost Jerusalem, why they were sent to Babylon as exiles. And it gave a picture of the temple, the temple where God was meant to dwell. Yet Ezekiel reminded the people that they had brought sin into the temple, uh, that while God dwelt there, a God of purity and holiness, they were sinning there. They were even worshipping other gods in there. And in Ezekiel, we see well, God and sin are there in the temple, and God says, we can't coexist, one of us needs to go. And 70 years earlier, uh, as Babylon attacked, well, God said, actually, I'm going. You've brought sin into my temple, then, then I'm going to get up and leave. And Ezekiel 1 to 11 gives, again, a very strange vision. You can go back and read it. But in this vision, we see the presence of God, almost represented in an ark, an ark, it's carried up and lifted between earth and heaven. Uh, this, this ark has uh, the, um, the, the um, atonement cover on it. And where we're told that there's a, a lid of lead uh, on this thing, that actually rhymes in Hebrew with atonement cover. So it's almost like this is a different kind of cover. God in the ark was lifted up between earth and heaven and he was carried by pure angels, cherubs, out of the temple. I know that's a strange vision in itself, but it feels like this vision is sort of an anti-vision. It's playing off it. It's a parody of this vision. This time it's not an ark with the presence of God. It's a basket filled with wicked wickedness and iniquity. And it doesn't have the atonement cover on it where sin can be forgiven. Uh, it has a lead of, a, a lead of lead, sorry, <laughs> a lid made of lead uh, so that the sin can't escape, the wickedness can't escape. It's so heavy. And instead of being lifted up between earth and heaven by beautiful angels, it's lifted up by, we're told, these women with wings of a stork, which is an unclean bird. Uh, and then it's taken not to Jerusalem, it's taken to the land of Babylon, to Shinar. And there a house or a temple is built for it. You see, here we have an anti-ark carried by anti-cherubs to an anti-temple in an anti-Jerusalem. Got to say, everything is wrong here. But the, the, the central message is clear. Now God has returned to his temple. Well, he's not going to leave again. He's staying put. This is where he belongs. He's going to send sin, sin away. Sin no longer has a place. It's stuffed in a basket, the lid that cannot be removed and sent away. The third of the, the vision, though, tells us that God's not happy to just send sin somewhere else and happy for it to then exist there. That God is actually going to judge sin. We see it in the vision of the horses. Uh, this vision of horses is... Similar but different to the vision in Zechariah 1 of horses. And even as I read it, uh, see if, if you've heard that Zechariah 1, see if you can notice the differences. Again, we're told, I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. 
and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. And I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my lord? And the angel said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. The north country is Babylon, remember. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Zechariah 1 gave us a similar picture. Uh, from the presence of God, these horses were sent out, and those horses were messengers. They were observing uh, what was happening in the surrounding nations and reporting back. And the report they received then was that all the nations were at rest. And that was a problem, because these nations had done great evil. The nations were at rest. Yet this time it's not just horses, is it? These horses have chariots, because these horses aren't sent out just to observe. Chariots are prepared to fight. God is sending out judgment this time. And as he sends out judgment, particularly to the north, it finishes by saying, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest. Well, that sounds kind of restful. That's Now God's spirit is at rest instead of the the spirit of all these rebellious, sinful nature, uh, nations who've done great injustice. I think this passage is saying uh, that God is sending out judgment. While he's sending sin away, while sin has no place in his presence, he is sending out judgment. These forces are going uh, from his presence to judge all sin. Because if God has returned, if God is here, then Sin has no place. And as we saw in those, those first visions, that the house of sin would be destroyed, the house of iniquity would be destroyed, iniquity would be taken to its own house in Babylon. You see here, well, the house of sin will be destroyed. This was a word to God's people then. Actually, God would hold the nations to account. And even then, in, in Zechariah's day, the nation of Babylon had been destroyed, overthrown by the Persians. They were already experiencing this judgment, the way that they had mistreated God's people. Yet there's an echo of this vision as we look forward to Revelation. We're assured that one day God will make all wrongs in this world right. One day God will judge all the sin that is hidden. And we're told in Revelation 5 that Jesus will come with a scroll in his hands as he comes to judge sin and evil. And in Revelation 19, we're told that Jesus, the armies of heaven, will come riding on white horses to judge sin. God is a God of holiness, a God of purity. And he says, when I return, when I enter in, then sin has to go. This passage doesn't just tell us what needs to leave. This passage tells us what belongs. If God has come to dwell, then what does belong in his land? What does belong in his city? 
we see a movement the other direction now, that God's king and his people will come to Jerusalem and will build his house. And, and this part isn't another dream that Zechariah had. This time, Zechariah is told, kind of in real life, to, uh, to do these things. And through these three strange things, uh, the, the crown, the branch, this temple, we're told that God's king and his people will come to Jerusalem and will build his house. First, we see it in this crown. Verse 9, the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, uh, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. See the movement coming now back from Babylon. There are some things that do belong. God is sending some of his people back. While well, some, some of God's people had started to come in 538 BC, there were still uh, people left in Babylon who then needed to come and join. This seems like a, a second or third wave of people coming back from Babylon to Jerusalem. But they bring something. They bring silver and gold. And with the things that they are bringing, the riches of Babylon returning to Jerusalem, uh, they're told to make a crown. Take from them silver and gold, make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua. Uh, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Now Joshua was the high priest of the people. Joshua, we heard in chapter 3, uh, God was cleansing and commissioning. God was again going to dwell with his people, forgive their sin. He was going to do it through this priest. And so Joshua getting a crown, that's continuing to affirm that God has returned. God's going to dwell with his people and deal with their sin because he's giving a crown to, to Joshua. But it's also strange, isn't it? Because who do you expect a crown to be given to? Not a priest, but, but a king. But the priest is given a, a crown, and we do hear about a king, the branch. Verse 12, Say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place. He shall build the temple of the Lord. It's he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. This isn't just about the priest, Joshua. God says a king, the branch is coming. The branch was mentioned in Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, was meant to be a king descended from David. A similar king was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when David was told that someone descended from you, one of your sons will one day build a temple for me. And we see all of this expectation coming together in the branch. God says the branch is coming. He'll be descended from David. He will build my temple. He's the one who will bear royal honor, will sit on his throne. This is God's promised king who is coming. So if God has returned to Jerusalem, what belongs? Well, his king will come. His king belongs. And we're told that there will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And again, there is a strange blurring here. It's like, why is there a priest on the throne? Uh, because normally a king would sit on the throne. Or maybe there's a priest next to him on another throne. 
But there does seem to be this great unity, a peace between priest and king. And through all of this, we're told the temple will be built. Those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Uh, as we're told that actually the branch himself will build the temple. And in Zechariah's day, we see a, a picture of this, a partial fulfillment of this. As God's people were there, uh, they were there in Jerusalem among the ruins, trying to rebuild, trying to build the temple. And God had given them two leaders. They had Joshua the high priest, and there was the governor, Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, oh, well, he was the governor in charge of building the temple. Uh, Zerubbabel, he, uh, he, he was a temple builder, but most importantly, uh, he was descended from David. He was a king-like figure. And he and Joshua did work together. There was peace between them, and between them they did work. And from history we know that under them the temple was rebuilt. God worked in that day to reassure his people, though it's hard, though Jerusalem's in ruin, though the temple project is hard, I am with you, I will build it. Now I have returned, my king will come, and between my king, my priest, I will build the temple. Those who are far off will come and help. At this point, God seemed to speak of his people who'd gone to Babylon. More of the exiles were going to return, more help was coming. More hands were coming. God was going to build his temple. Yet there's one, one detail we shouldn't miss here. An important detail we shouldn't miss here. Verse 14, we're told, The crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder. And this could be a second crown that was made. This could be the crown given to Joshua that was then taken away. What's important to notice is who never gets a crown. Well, Zerubbabel, if there was a king figure, if there was someone who was descended from David going to build the temple, well, that's Zerubbabel, yet, yet he never got a crown. We're told a, a crown was left in the temple. Even as Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people did rebuild a temple, there was a crown waiting inside it for someone else. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. Because if well, the crown was given to Zerubbabel, if this were just about them, then well, that, yes, the temple was built, yet that temple was destroyed again. If it's just about these two, it's bad news because well, when God dwells somewhere, then sin doesn't belong. And where did that leave all of us? On the outside. If, if God dwelt there, we don't belong with him. We have sinned. We're not... We're not pure like he is. We have good news because while that, that crown waited, while that crown was left in the temple, one day someone would come who would wear that crown, who did deserve that crown. Though the temple itself was destroyed and rebuilt again, 500 years later, Jesus came. And Jesus was descended from David. He was God's king. He was the one who truly deserved royal honor, who truly could sit on God's throne, as promised about the branch. 
because he was both descended from David as God's king, yet he was God himself come into this world. In Jesus, we have the true branch, we have the true priest king. In Jesus, there's no longer a tension between is this a priest or a king or even a priest and a king working closely together. Here we have one who is both priest and king, descended from David, yet God himself. In Jesus, our priest king suffers the curse against sin. Jesus, our priest king, he came to the temple, the temple that had been rebuilt yet again. And when he saw evil in the temple, when he saw money traders, he said, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And when people asked where where he got the authority for this, well, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Years later, our perfect priest king, the one who is priest, the one who is the branch, the one who could truly wear the crown, he came. And he came not to the physical temple of stone. He came because he himself is the temple. He himself is the presence of God in this world. He himself is where God dwells, where we can come and meet God. And when our priest king came, he came to the place where he belongs, to Jerusalem, to God's city. Yet he was sent out, wasn't he? Our priest king was rejected. He was humiliated. He was sent out of the temple. He was sent out of the city. Jesus was sent out of Jerusalem towards Babylon. Hebrews 13.12 says Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. While he was the one who truly did belong in God's presence, he truly could live in the house with God because he was God himself. He was sent out, outside the gate, to the place of uncleanness. He was handed over to the nations, where he died a bloody death for us on the cross. And he did that to take the curse for sin that we deserved. We've heard of a curse that comes on sin, God sending out his word, a curse against sin. Yet in Galatians 3, we're told that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That curse we saw that went out over the whole land and to drive sin out, well, that should be all of us. We can't stand in God's presence because of our sin, yet we're told, Jesus was sent out. Jesus was handed to the nations. Jesus went out from Jerusalem, from God's presence, to suffer the curse of sin for us, uh, that we could dwell in his presence, that we could be forgiven, that we could be made children of God. We're told this is that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, people from the Gentiles. 
Remember those people, we're told, who would come from far off to build the temple of the Lord? The amazing reality is that that's us. We don't deserve to come near. We, because of our sin, deserve our, belong out there, yet God is drawing people from Babylon. God is drawing people from the nations. God is drawing sinners like you and me into his presence. And we can come near and we can live with him. We can have fellowship with him. We can have his spirit dwell in us because the curse that our sin deserves has already fallen on Jesus. So we from the Gentiles might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is an invitation for you. Uh, If you've not asked for forgiveness, if you've not sought to know God, None of us deserved to be in his presence. Yet God invites us in, no matter where we're from, no matter what we've done. Jesus suffered the curse that sin deserved so that we could draw near. We could dwell with God. We could be a part of his house. For those of us who do know God, the assurance is that we have his spirit. That God has come to dwell, not in a temple made of stone, but he's come come to dwell in God's God's house. He's come to dwell in Jesus. He's come to dwell in Jesus' body. He has come to dwell in the church. He has come to dwell in each of us. For those of us who trust Jesus, well, if God has come into us, well, there are some things that need to go. We must send sin away through his word. This is put quite starkly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. He's saying if, if we trust Jesus, he, he dwells in us by his spirit. We are filled with him. So how can we use our bodies for sin? Continues in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We often hear our, temp- our bodies re- referred to as temples. Uh, and often that's meaning, actually, we've got to keep our bodies beautiful by what we eat and what we do. And, and that, that's all good and important. Yet what makes us beautiful? It's God dwelling inside us. Nothing on the outside. It's that God, the God of the universe, the God of holiness lives in us. This passage reminds us that if God dwells in us, then we're not our own. We were bought with a price, therefore we should send sin away. Even the images here in Zechariah, I think they, they suggest how we're to put sin away. First, I think we're to not manage sin, but to put it to death. Sometimes we kind of treat sin like a cliff and we just see how close we can get. Like how much unhelpful thing, how many unhelpful things can I watch on Netflix before it's like crossing the line totally into sin? Or how, how much kind of juicy kind of information can I share about people before I cross the line into gossip? Uh, We see how close we can get to sin. We flirt with it rather than fighting it. But that's not how sin was treated in these visions, is it? Sin was stuffed into a basket 
a lid of lead was put on top of it and it was sent away. Saying sin is dangerous, sin is toxic, get it out of here, send it away. Don't flirt with it, fight it. Sometimes we can act like we can manage our sin. Sure, I've got an unhelpful habit on the side, maybe some things I look at, uh, but I'm trying to keep it under control to make sure it doesn't hurt anyone or, or blow up. Or yeah, I've got some unhelpful habits here or a little bit of sin, but I'm just managing it, hoping it doesn't get too bad or hurt anyone. That's not how sin is treated here. Sin is to be stuffed in the basket with a lid and sent away. God says, fight your sin. Don't don't flirt with it. I don't think you can manage your sin. Sin is deadly, so send it away. The sin that is kind of there lurking in your life, keep fighting it. Talk to a friend. Remember, God dwells in you, the God of holiness. Therefore, sin does not belong. He calls us to send sin away, yet he also empowers us to send sin away. Because God draws out sin by his word. As we saw that God was dwelling, was sort of pushing sin out of the land through this scroll, we know it's by his word that actually he works in us. By his word, he changes us. His word tells us what he wants and doesn't want. It's by his word that he also strengthens us. He reminds us of what Jesus has done. By his word, he reminds us of our true identity. By his word, he reminds us of the freedom we have. It's by his word that he is dwelling, pushing sin out, making sin taste worse and worse to us. We would want God. God has come in and sin is to go. Yet finally we see that Jesus called for nations to build his church with him. God has come into us, sin needs to go, yet, yet he's calling someone to him. But we deserve to be out there. We deserve to be away. God is calling sinners. God is calling people from the nations. God is calling people no matter where they have been, no matter what they have done, to come to him. It's the amazing promise that those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. God's doing that today. He's calling people to himself. Maybe calling you today. And when he calls us to himself, he also gives us a purpose. Where people were building these houses of sin, these houses of wickedness earlier on, and God said actually sin should be sent to Babylon where it will have its own house built for it. God says, no, there's another house you should be building. You should be giving yourself to me and my purposes. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? While we don't belong in God's presence, actually he's drawn us in and he's actually making us together to be his temple, his people. We do belong with him because we've been cleansed by Jesus, our priest king. He builds us together to be a spiritual house, yet even as we ourselves are the temple, 
He calls us to come and help build his church. He says, you are a royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's called us, it's for a reason. He calls us to help build his church. And this would be a crushing burden if we by ourselves were called to build his church. Yet this passage says that it's not firstly us who does this. It's the branch, it's Jesus who will build his church, who will build his house. And then it's those who are called from afar who will help build the house. If you've been called by Jesus, if you know his forgiveness, if you know that he took the curse that you deserve, then he's called you to himself for a purpose, that you would help build his house. He's calling you to build your life, not not on sin or wickedness or iniquity, but to build in your life, actually, pouring into his purposes. Because the opposite of a life of sin isn't just trying not to sin as much. The opposite of a life of sin isn't just building a comfortable life for yourself while trying not to sin too much. The opposite of a life of sin, building a house of sin, is giving all of who you are giving all of your life and your body and your time and yourself to God and his purposes. God calls his people and God promises he's drawing people from the nations to help build his church. God's called you to himself. He's got you in your family. He's got you there in your job. He's got you there in your neighborhood with your neighbors. He's got you here in Dubai for his purposes to help build his church. So throw yourself into that. Fight your sin. Flee from your sin. Send it away. Yet throw yourself into God, God's purposes. Uh, He's drawing us who don't deserve it into his presence, that we are his people. We are his temple. We are his church. And he gives us the privilege to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our perfect priest king came, Jesus. I thank you that uh, he has built his house. He's built his church on a foundation that can never fail, his death and resurrection. Thank you that he took the curse reserved for us. And thank you that he's now drawing people from the nations from far off to be his forgiven people and to help build his house. Lord, help us to know, help us to rest in this forgiveness. Uh, Help us to live in confidence and joy, knowing you dwell in us. And Lord, use us. Uh, Use us uh, in our families, our jobs, our city, our church. Uh, Use us for your purposes. In Jesus' good and great name that we pray.